0: let's pray. God, what a thought. It's, it's really too big for us to think that we who knew nothing of you weren't searching for you, now belong to you, and you have given yourself to us. No doubt you're in charge, you're king, you're lord, but you have given yourself to us as our inheritance, as our security, as our portion, it says in the Psalms, and most of all, best of all, as our perfectly heavenly Father. What we could never have on earth, Lord, you have provided, and you've made it for us a home in heaven. So help me speak well of you. Let your character, your purpose be clear, and help me, Lord, to live it far better than I could ever preach it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. You have no idea how good it is to be back. Go to Texas if you want to be reminded how amazing Huntington Beach, California is. I I went to El Paso last week and I was so sorry, just tell all of you, but especially the students, I was so sorry to miss Student Sunday, but I had a a little window of time where my parents were able to to welcome us uh, in El Paso. My parents are our missionaries, Uh, they've been missionaries to Mexico since 1971. Uh, so I had a little short time to visit them, and just out of Christian kindness, not because they're my parents, uh, keep them in prayer. Their spirits are strong, but their bodies are, are crumbling, and they're, they're going through a very difficult time physically right now. Uh, but we had a, a few sweet days there, and while I was in El Paso, I, of course, took time to go to church with, with my folks and with my wife and my sons. A couple things about that before we look into the Bible. First of all, you may not remember, if you've been coming here a long time, you may not remember what a daunting thing it is to go to church if you've never been to that particular congregation. It's awkward, it's weird, people look at you strangely, okay? Why am I telling you this? Because Coronado Baptist Church in El Paso, Texas welcomed us like family from first sight. They were so kind. We got home and there was already a note from the church saying that it was nice to meet us. I don't know if we'll ever be back. Those visits aren't very frequent with my parents. But I, I'm telling you all this, just to commission you to be awesome every time you come here, okay? Keep your head on a swivel. Look for the person who's sitting alone. If they obviously want to be left alone, leave them alone. <laughs> the, but a, a hospitable, considerate welcome, a little bit of personal interest makes all the difference to people. People may come to this church, maybe you're here this morning and your mindset is you're going to give God one last look, one last chance. We want you to know you've been prayed for even if we don't know your name. You are loved by this congregation. We pray for you even if we don't know you, even as a stranger. We pray for you throughout the week because we're so delighted about who Jesus is. That by His grace, we get welcomed into God's family. We get to live as a family of faith. We get to live for eternal purposes, for things that are going to outlast us. But the practical point is, none of that is evident if we don't welcome people with genuine Christian kindness and hospitality. So, will you receive your commission to be awesome wherever you go, and particularly when you come here? Yes. All right. There are a few of you who are holding out, and... Uh want to f- hear more details, that's fine. The rest of us are going to carry on being awesome without you. We hope that you will join us soon. Now, First Peter chapter 2, please. You'll just open your Bible there and hold your place there. First Peter chapter 2. One of the first and most significant things we did, my wife and I did when we were missionaries ourselves, and it was much more her than, than I doing it, frankly. Sharice uh, has always had a heart for children, and, and the worse the, a break a kid has been given, the more she cares and wants to be beside those kids. So, it wasn't related to our church, but she discovered the ministry of an orphanage on the outskirts of our city, which is Chihuahua, Mexico, and found there an amazing Mexican pastor and his wife. He started an orphanage because he met some kids on the street who had nowhere to sleep and didn't know what they were going to eat next. And with the equivalent of 50 American cents in his pocket, he started an orphanage basically by taking them home. And that grew into something extraordinary an orphanage that welcomed the children who would not fit and could not be cared for by Mexico's pretty extensive social security and social services system. Kids who had acted the worst and been victimized the worst, including children from the indigenous tribe of Chihuahua, the Tarahumara, were there. And it wasn't only us, it was churches from across the southwest that discovered this place and started going down there, including a family and a church from Colorado. They befriended a a Tarahumara, or as they named themselves, a Raramuri boy. And if you don't know, if you haven't heard that name, you might if you're a runner because they're an indigenous tribe to those mountains. They live as they did 500 years ago. They don't speak Spanish. They have little interest in anyone's culture. They really are sort of foreigners, even though they're the indigenous people. They're sort of foreigners within the country of Mexico. Their culture is just utterly different and ancient. They're most famous for for running for dozens and hundreds of miles And somehow, one boy from that tribe had ended up an orphan. So, in a really really significant way, he is doubly alienated. He doesn't speak Spanish. He doesn't understand the mainstream contemporary culture. And whatever happened up in those mountains that he called home, he had no one left in life to look for him. And this Christian family from a church in Colorado slowly grew to love him. I'm only hearing this story. I'm relating it to you. I wasn't part of it. And as he began, his, his world got a little bit bigger and he understood more and more just how desolate and lonely his life was. He was in deep pain for being all alone and facing life all by himself, especially in circumstances this difficult. And on the day he was saddest, that family came back and what he didn't know is that they had been working for a very, very long time, incredibly laborious legal process to adopt him and take him home to Colorado. I wasn't there. I wish I could have been. I got tears in my eyes hearing the story, and as best I recall, he was there when they pulled up for an unannounced visit, and somehow one of those magical things happened where he knew why they were there, and they ran toward each other, and they hugged his family because it was official he was theirs. Well, that was about, I suppose, my goodness. That's been at least 15 or 16 years. That's been at least 17 or 18 years ago. And I think of that boy often because the western Sierra Madre mountains, what Mexicans call the Sierra Madre, is actually our Rockies. As it crosses the border, we start calling it the Rocky Mountains. In other words, he moved just up the range. But his life was fundamentally different. And every once in a while when I think of him and his story comes to mind, I try to imagine what his life must be like now. Because all the children, the standard issue Mexican citizen children in that orphanage, came from desperate, awful, grinding poverty. The indigenous children much more. So for him to cross the border and see the United States for the first time, Be welcomed into a home with all the luxuries that you and I take for granted and get, frankly, a little bit upset if they're not just quite right, not quite clean. He must have graduated from high school now. For all I know, if he was as successful as their other kids, he probably holds a college degree. He's probably on his way to a good career. And everything changed because he was given a new identity. Out of the love and the grace and the unmerited, you couldn't ask for it, kindness of a family, his life was forever changed. And he was given a new life, and with, along with that new life, he was given a new identity. I'm telling you this because this story of earthly transformation is just a pale picture of something the Bible presents all across the New Testament. Actually, it's presented in the Old Testament and made fully, in full color, and sharp detail as we're told the story of Jesus. Because we're told what we know every day through our conscience is true. We've sinned and we feel the distance between ourselves and God. When our consciences are tender, we know how far we've fallen short of the standards we set for ourselves to say nothing of God's standards for us. And the story of the gospel is that God looked across time and eternity and saw our lostness and our alienation and sent His Son not only to live among us, but to live as one of us. And the eternal Son of God became an actual human being, lived life righteously and perfectly in our place. He did everything none of us have ever done, including obey His parents as a child. That's the first story of righteousness we're told about Jesus' life, that He went home and submitted to His parents. Try to find a kid who does that all the time. He doesn't exist. But He offered His perfect righteous life in exchange for our own. And if we turn away from our sin, turn away from our old life and trust Him instead, we receive this new identity and along with it a new life. And that's exactly what we've been reading about in 1 Peter, Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'll read from verse 9 where I left off two weeks ago. Peter is writing to persecuted Christians in the first century that are really starting to pay the cost for trusting Jesus, and before he tells them what to do, he reminds them of who they are. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for His, for God's own possession. And Peter says, the point of all that, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen to this identity. Listen to the change that has been effected in their lives. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's their identity, and along with their identity, much like that indigenous child all those years ago, come privileges and resources and status and protections and blessings and comforts that he didn't know existed, that he didn't know were possible. Along with that, and that's part of my ongoing fascination and why I think of what that must have looked like for, been thinking about it for so long, along with the new status and the new identity come a lot of new responsibilities. Because now you have to go to bed at a certain time. Now you have to go to school. Now you have to do your homework. For the first time, maybe in his life, he has siblings, and they have to be treated kindly. And you can't just say or do anything to them that you please. You're in a family now, and it has both privileges and responsibilities. So, Peter here tells these persecuted Christians that have been scattered across the Roman Empire, because now it's costly to be a Christian, they're being blamed for the ills of their society, terrible slander is being thrown their way. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. And he tells them, listen, you have in spite and in the midst of all this persecution, both as individuals and as a church, as a community, you have new standing. You belong to God now. You represent Him as His priest. You're a nation unto God. You are a people that belong to God Himself. You once were not His, but now you are. You once lived without mercy, but now He's given it to you. You have a new identity and a new life, and He's going to go on to tell them something that is so easy to forget, that the world they're currently living in is not their home eventually. Look at verse 11. Here's the so what. Here's the what to do about all this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners. Well, there's a word you use every day, don't you? uh, Just remember sitting around your school and talking about the sojourners? Anybody know what that means? The idea of a sojourner is someone who's only a temporary resident. He won't be there for long. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. In other words, someone who is not in their home country. In the ancient world, sometimes if you read that great old literature, sometimes when a king was defeated, instead of killing him, they would send him into exile. It's kind of a living death. You're not going to die, but you can never come home. You'll never see your land. You'll never see your people again. Peter says, I I love you. We're family. You are beloved to me, and I'm pleading with you. I'm urging you with urgent language. I'm going to give you something to do and remind you of how to behave as sojourners and exiles. In other words, as people who are only here for a short time and who are not truly in their old home. There's this old country western kind of hymn called This World Is Not My Home, I'm Only a Passing Through. It's kind of cool. I listened to it this morning. Ricky Skaggs version, if you can find it. Okay, It's, um, it's another time and another style of music. But it has a really great biblical idea. That this world, however you find it, whether you find it pleasant and amazing and wildly enjoyable or difficult and filled with suffering and you're losing hope in it, whatever your circumstances are in this world today, You won't be in it long. You're only in it for a short time, and it is not truly your home. It is not your ultimate family. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, and here's the first thing that you have to do with your new identity. Because with identity come not only privileges but responsibilities. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, what's that mean? Church is a place where we should always be proper, but also truthful and candid. Peter is reminding them of something that anyone who's old enough to be in this room can name, has experienced, has felt shame and guilt over. He's reminding them that though they now belong to God, they have a former life, and its desires, its sinful desires are not dead. They still call out to them. Sinful desires of the flesh, passions of the flesh. What would that look like? Well, for, for almost anybody, that involves a great deal of the desires that you have, that you feel in your body, beginning with sex. For a lot of us, they also have to do with food. They may be more subtle things like the love of gossip, like the little thrill of excitement you feel when someone you don't really care for is having a hard time, and you want to hear just a little bit more. All of these desires, all of these passions, and sometimes they come across as depriving yourself of things that God has provided for you that you don't want to enjoy. Other times, it's like taking the good gifts that God has provided and using them to excess or taking advantage of them at the wrong time or from the wrong people and in the wrong relationships. There's a hundred things that the body, the flesh… The old life desires, and Peter calls them here passions. Another translation says the sinful desires, this craving of the way you used to live. And His word, it's again not a very common word today. He says, abstain from it. Have nothing to do with it. Get away from it. And the reason, he says, is because of something that probably we don't really believe. Look at verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as temporary residents and exiles or foreigners, people who don't really belong to this world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And here's the reason. These passions of the flesh, whatever that is for you, However that involves your body, however that captivates your mind, however that troubles your soul, Peter says these things wage war against your soul. And I say that most Christians, including myself, when I'm not paying attention, don't really believe that because we experience temptation and sin as something altogether too casual not that big of a deal. Something that can be indulged in if you're pressed hard enough, or it's been too long, or you're provoked enough. Because we say, well, everybody does it. And we say a biblical truth, we say, well, nobody's perfect. Perfect. But Peter's point is, you belong to someone else now. You are the Lord. You have a new identity. You're a new people. But the war in your flesh, the war against your soul, rages on. And notice he says it wages war. And if ever in America there's an overused word, it's war. Football season's about to start, and a whole bunch of football players are about to refer to themselves as warriors. And they're not they're gladiators but they're not warriors and we talk about our office or our hobbies or our school or our circle of friends ah oh, it's been a really been a war no it hasn't learn about war talk to someone who's been at war as we're well told war is hell the kind of war that peter undoubtedly has in mind is the war that Ro- the kind of war that rome wages Where the most fearsome, bloodthirsty, brutal, technologically advanced men who have been deprived through training of any kind of human emotion in combat sweep over a culture and transform it if possible and destroy it if not. Peter remembers now the crucifixion of Jesus. He likely witnessed many more in his lifetime. He knows the power of Rome and the boot that it currently has on the neck of his people. He knows what war is, and he says, the sinful desires from your old life are like that. In the words of Jesus, sin and the enemy come to steal and kill and destroy you notice the escalation? Steal, kill, destroy. Just think about it with me for a second. Would you rather have something stolen from you, or would you rather be murdered? Pretty easy choice, right? But that's ancient warfare. First, An attacking army takes what does not belong to them, if necessary, kills people, and if necessary, leaves literally scorched earth, sometimes with salt planted in the ground so that nothing would grow there for a very long time. That's war. That's the mindset of Peter when he talks about, in verse 11, if you'll look at it again, these passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. The temptation, the desire, the hunger, the restlessness you have to return to your old life, whatever that is, drugs, out of control, unsanctified, unchristian use of your sexuality, whatever that means to you. Those desires and all of the others, those, Peter says, wage war against your soul. You have a new heart. You have a new life. You have a new identity. But the old life is not over. Peter is saying, you have a new life, so stay away, please. I urge you, my loved ones, to stay away from the sinful desires of the old one. Here's how Paul explained it in a different passage of the Bible. He said, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ... And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, that's really interesting, because how in the world do you put on a person? That's what he said to do, but how do you do it? Well, I think at the most basic level, it means to dedicate yourself to imitating Jesus. In other words, you're his disciple. You've taken him on as the master teacher. He's the boss. You're going to watch and observe through Scripture and prayer What Jesus does. The Bible tells you faithfully who Jesus is and how He behaves. You can see His attitudes, His choices. You can say the way He thinks, the things He chooses to do. It's all there. And Paul is saying, put that on, imitate it, make that your life. And I think this means a relationship Not an imitation like a pattern, but a relationship that is so close to another person that you pattern yourself, you make yourself into what He already is. That, by the way, folks, as a general reminder, is why we're called Christians. That literally means, in the old world, it was an insult, little Christ. And the extraordinary thing, as I'm going to tell you, is that the ancient Christians, in the way they behaved actually reminded people of Jesus. And what this verse is calling us to do is to do the same thing. So, put put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That I understand a little bit more easily, and maybe you do as well. Have you ever started a diet but bought the donuts anyway? (laughs) That's making provision for breaking the diet literally making provision for the flesh. You said you were going paleo, but the donutery is fantastic. So, you're not going to eat the donuts. You're just going to buy the donuts for the kids. (laughs) Never mind that the kids moved out. Well, somebody might come over. You're an introvert. You don't like people. You certainly don't want them in the sanctuary of your home, but you just want to have them, and go, I'm well, just a little, just a little snacky. I'll just have this half of a donut as breakfast. I better take it with me in the car. Nobody would want half a donut anyway. I'll just <laughs> wrap this up. And soon, your wife is saying, who ate all the donuts? And it was you. <laughs> for one simple reason, you made provision for desires that you know to stay away from. And nothing changes. Here's how the Puritan John Owen pulled a lot of biblical teaching together, including from the book of Romans. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And my point is, perhaps no one in this room, certainly not me, has taken sin seriously enough. We read wage war and we think it's overblown language. We don't understand, perhaps because we haven't lived holy for long enough to understand the corrosive, eroding effect that sin actually has on the person you are and the way you behave. Peter's urging, his pleading here is to have nothing to do with the old life. And in the next verse, he tells you why. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And the Gentiles here is biblical shorthand for the pagans of the ancient world, people who didn't believe in God. It's not really an ethnic designation, it's just a way of sometimes used in the Bible of speaking to of those people who may be loved by God but do not yet know him see that was their contemporary experience these christians are beginning to pay the cost of what it means to be a christian in the first few words of his letter, Peter reminds them that they are chosen by God, but they have been scattered across the empire. Scholars aren't quite sure, but it's very possible that this letter was written after Nero burned Rome and blamed the Christians for it. In other words, it's beginning to cost them, and it will cost them much more as the Roman Empire advances. It's beginning to cost them jobs, it's beginning to cost them family and friendships and social standing. As they withdraw from their wicked old life, people are asking them questions like, why don't you come around anymore? Maybe you've heard this one, you think you're better than us? Oh, you're kind of a, one of those holy rollers, huh? And you've got a decision to make now. Because now you can tell them about Jesus and explain your new life and your new identity. You can compare and contrast what you once believed and what you now know, but it's hard. And as you read the history of these first Christians, all it would have taken when the persecution really became intense, all it would have taken to make peace with the empire was to take a pinch of incense and drop it on an altar dedicated to the emperor. A quiet, subtle, nobody-needs-to-see-it little piece of worship, acknowledging the emperor's mad desire to be treated as God on earth. And many, many Christians says, we're sorry, but we cannot. We have a real king, and we have a higher allegiance. And all across history, not only in the beginning of history, but all across the world, even today, in places like North Africa, in the underground church in China... In places even within our own continent, in Mexico where I grew up, in the southern part, there are terrible persecutions because people are living among people who don't believe, who have begun to persecute them. And Peter says, in these conditions, here's what you do. You keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, you keep doing the right thing. You keep behaving well. You keep being good. Here's why. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, and all of that's happening, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is one of those other little dense little biblical phrases where Peter quietly reminds them with just those words, one day God will come and judge every person. It's your turn on the anvil. It's your turn in the fire now. But a day is coming when God will show up. He will judge everyone and expose what's right and what's wrong. What is the counsel here in this verse? Right here. Read it with me, in fact. Here's what the Lord is telling us to do. It's just this. Be so good for so long that people can't help but see God. That's your commission as a Christian. If you're going to live in an increasingly godless society, your mandate as a Christian is to be honorable, to keep doing, as it says in verse 12, to keep doing the good thing, to keep doing the right thing. They may see your good deeds. And the point of your good deeds is not to impress them. The point of your good deeds is to not build your brand and make people think you're a really cool, compassionate, with it kind of person. What is the point, according to the Bible in 1 Peter 2 verse 12, of living honorably among people who may not like you, who may reject your God, who may in fact curse your God and curse you as they criticize you and speak against you as an evildoer, you keep your conduct honorable, you keep doing your good deeds so that they will what? so that they will glorify God. So in other words, and this takes time and this takes patience and this takes diligence and this takes something that it's very hard for Christians in general and American Christians in particular not to do and that is to not retaliate. And that was the genius of the Christians in the 1st century. They kept explaining who Jesus was. They kept explaining not Jesus as a value, but Jesus as a risen person who had actually died for sins, who they knew in a real personal and saving way, and they kept saying, we cannot join you, we cannot do that, we will not do that because we love Him. And not only did they profess this with their lips, they showed it by their good deeds, In fact, I told you earlier a story about an orphanage. Do you know where the orphanage concept came from? Christians in ancient Rome patrolled the trash dumps and went searching on a regular basis for babies that had been thrown out by their parents in ancient Rome because that was the custom. A child that is not wanted is thrown in the trash. The Christians went looking for them and brought strangers, newborn children, into their homes and raised them as their own children. That's how the orphanage got started. It's a Christian concept. Now, that's pretty far removed from our day. The amazing temptation that we have as 21st century Christians in this country is to stand on our rights and demand them to get right back in their face to demand, to plead, to argue. And Peter says, no. You keep your light shining so brightly. You keep your conduct so bright, so good among these people who mistreat you that eventually they say to themselves, there's no other way to explain the way these people act. Their God must be the real deal. I was asked an interesting question after the first sermon, nine o'clock service. He said, this passage, and you're talking about just letting your life show it. What about proclaiming it? It's both. In the case of these Christians, there's no doubt why they're acting this way. They're always pointing back to Jesus. So please don't misunderstand me. It is both an active personal witness, so you use His name and share the gospel, But that same witness is bolstered, it's reinforced, and the way is prepared for it when you actually act like Jesus. If I can put it to you in plain language, it's awfully hard for people who don't know Him to believe in Jesus when we act like jerks. Because you speak of love and compassion and forgiveness and grace, and if you act without it, people say, ah, it's just, just another religious tripe just another system. That's just his, and he doesn't do it very well. No, what this church should be is a community, a group of people, of individuals who love and forgive and serve, who continue to give even when it's not comfortable, even when it's painful, who continue to forgive even when it's not deserved, who love without an expectation of return, because that's genuinely what love does. It loves for the sake of the other, not to get something back. And does that for so long in adverse circumstances that are so difficult that eventually people's mind is changed. Where do you think Peter got this idea? Does this sound familiar at all? Let me show you. He got it from his boss. He got it from his Lord. Jesus Christ said this years earlier. Read this with me. This is Jesus' commission to anyone who claims to be his disciples. Read this with me. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's the balance. You continue to do your good works. You don't hide your good works. You just don't do the good works to draw attention to yourself. They see you acting in a way that they don't deserve. They see you loving and serving and giving and sacrificing time and money and talent and pouring out grace for so long in such tough circumstances that they have to believe that it can't just be you. What you're telling them about, God, must be true. And they eventually, before it's too late and in judgment, they give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Two weeks ago, I told you a story without mentioning the name of a very influential writer and pastor who publicly renounced the faith. It happened again this week, this time from the world of music. That man's faith may not be completely swept away. Another Christian, I think, in the Spirit of Christ, publicly reached out to him, and they apparently are going to continue to talk about the things that trouble him and I'm not standing in judgment, that's why I'm not using his name, but if you read his testimony, it went viral. One of the things he said as reasons for renouncing or being on the edge of renouncing Christ and Christianity is, he said pastors fail, pastors fall all the time. And that's true. Since I'm a pastor, just let me tell you, We're meant to live in family and community together. So it's fair and biblical for you to keep an eye on me, but any time I fail you, whenever I disappoint you, please, for your sake, look past me and look to the good shepherd. I'm just the under-shepherd. All the Christians around you are just imperfect disciples. They're just apprentices who are on their way to becoming like Jesus but are not yet perfected, not yet glorified, But in this man's testimony, there were lines in there that led to me to believe that he's experienced deep disappointment because of terrible hypocrisy. That's real. If that's damaged your faith, let me tell you plainly, that wasn't Jesus, but let me tell myself and all of us, we must do better because Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Not to draw attention to yourself, but because they come from Christ in imitation of Christ as you put on Christ and people see you and give glory, not to you, but to your Father who is in heaven. I'm not a prophet. I'm barely a pastor. But I can tell you this I think it's going to be harder in the years to come to stand firm for Christ and what Christ taught. I don't think it's going to get easier. I think it's going to become more costly, and this is why we have to resolve now to love our identity, treasure our identity, know our identity, but live it out. In such shocking, countercultural, they've never seen anyone act this way, behave this well for so long so that they can see Jesus. In simple terms, church, what I'm trying to tell you is this, your life won't shine into the world if you act just like it. If you claim to have a new life in Christ, and even if you do, if you don't show it, they won't see it, and to make a difference, you have to be different. Students, and particularly those who have been baptized over these couple of weeks, you just made a public declaration of faith in Jesus. You said publicly through that testimony that you have humbled yourself and you have a new boss. That you don't run your own life anymore. That you have choices and preferences and talents, but you're going to submit them all to Christ and you're going to be His disciple. You carry that with you back into campus. You carry that back with you into your hobbies, your recreation, your sports. You consistently, you won't do it perfectly, but you consistently act like Jesus, students and all of you. When you blow it and act like a jerk and don't remind people of Jesus at all, if you're quick to confess it and not excuse it away, if you show the simple humility of someone who owes their life to someone else named Jesus Christ, you do that long enough and people who have absolutely no interest in your faith and what they think of as your religion, according to Jesus and according to Peter, will have their heart softened and their mind and heart turned and they will someday glorify God before it's too late. Why hasn't this been attempted? Because we don't believe it works simple as that. G.K. Chesterton said something about the Christian ideal. It wasn't a matter of it being tried and found ineffectual or ineffective. It was a matter of it being attempted and found too difficult, so we left it untried. Your best witness in an increasingly hostile, dark world where people don't believe what you believe is your own good works, your own light shining in the name of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, including me, have a network of people around us who the minute we identify as disciples of Jesus, you tell people you're a Christian, you may not know it, but a little spotlight comes on you. If you act differently, you'll make a difference. Where does this take us? Always a fork in the road. Some of you haven't trusted Christ, and it's your greatest need. And I'm going to ask you now as I close in prayer, if you've never trusted Jesus, if you're not absolutely certain of your salvation, to turn to Him now. And if you are, to recommit yourself to Jesus, to start living so that people can see the difference. Let's pray. Please, whoever you are, friend or stranger, maybe someone who's been coming here for a long time, but you're just not sure, can I ask you just directly would you bet your soul on your salvation this morning? Because that's what we do day by day. If you know there's a God above us who will someday judge us, we live every day making an assurance that our eternity is settled. That when God calls us to account, we'll be at peace, we'll be okay. If you're not certain of that, could I invite you right now to turn to God in prayer? Say, Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. I've indulged those passions way too long. I'm turning to you right now and asking your forgiveness. I'm asking you to save me, I'm asking you to take over, be my boss. Teach me and help me live for you, not myself. If you pray that or something like it this morning, please take the card in your bulletin, fill it out, drop it in the box on your way out. Let us know. Take a stand for Christ and let us know that you've decided. And if you're perhaps among the majority who already have this settled and Jesus really is your Lord and King, how's that war going? Does your private and public life give a testimony of the clear gospel of Jesus? Can God in private and people in public see the difference he's made? If not, ask his forgiveness and recommit yourself to making your light shine so that they'll glorify your Father. Lord, what a difference it would make if we would all humbly live not only with you but for you. If we were quick to forgive and to confess our sin, if we refuse to be provoked or be demanding or be difficult, if we would, in Christian love, serve others, give sacrificially, love without condition, Lord, our circles, our communities, our corner of the city, Lord, wherever you take us would be transformed. Help us to live as the people who first trusted you once did. Help our light to shine, Lord, not so that people will see us in the spotlights, but that people will turn to you and believe and be saved. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name for your glory. And Crosspoint said, amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Love you.